This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, which invests in educators and lifts up the Kansas City region and is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Students are angry and frustrated in the wake of yet another school shooting. Our teachers say this time actually could be different. Plus, a scandal over inflated graduation rates in Washington, D.C. has teachers across the country saying, is it happening in my district? We talk with a national education reporter to get some context. Plus, of course, kids these days, Black Panther edition on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Jamie Myers, what do you teach? I teach applications in uh, eighth grade. I had to think about that for a second. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a different class. It's speaking, writing, listening. It's not. And you do have a long weekend, so maybe you're not in teacher mode, right? Because <laughs> you all have President's Day off on the, the day after we take this. Uh, David Muhammad, what do you teach? Uh, international relations and economics. At the high school level. And Jason Staliga, what do you teach? I teach honors, biology, chemistry, and physics at the high school level. All three of them are educators at public schools in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to it. Uh, This first segment is a sad and heavy topic, but we need to talk about it. As we tape this episode, funerals are continuing for the 17 people, students and faculty members killed in this nation's latest school shooting. This one at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, the gunman who has now reportedly confessed to the rampage, was a former student who had been expelled for disciplinary reasons. According to news reports, he took an Uber to the school, walked onto campus carrying a small arsenal of weapons, including an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle, and proceeded to shoot into classrooms and down hallways, killing and injuring more than 30 people in a matter of about five minutes. Questions about this tragedy remain. How did the suspected gunman gain access to campus seemingly so easily? How were so many warning signs that the gunman showed on social media and elsewhere not enough to alert the proper authorities in time to thwart this plot? Could the school, the district, local law enforcement, the FBI, anyone have done more to stop this? And a question many still have and will continue to have. Does this change anything about our nation's debate on gun control? Well, there are early signs that, yes, maybe it will. The Saturday after the shooting, hundreds gathered in front of the federal courthouse in Parkland at a rally chanting things like enough and not one more time. One surviving student, her name is Emma Gonzalez, gave a blistering 10-minute address criticizing politicians by name, including President Trump, for accepting money from the National Rifle Association. Student, uh, Another Parkland student, David Hogg, also gave voice to this frustration. He spoke with CNN the day after the shooting, addressing his words to members of Congress. What we really need is action. Because we can say, yes, we're going to do all these things, thoughts and prayers. What we need more than that is action. Please, this is the 18th one this year. That's unacceptable. We're children. You guys, like, are the adults. You need to take some action and play a role. Work together, come over your politics, and get something done. Indeed, vigils and memorials in Parkland and across the country in the days after the shooting were spiked with real anger. And now students across America are talking about walking out of school on April 20th, which turns out to be the 19th anniversary of the Columbine school shooting. Here at No Wrong Answers, we wanted to hear what students were feeling and thinking, so we asked our teachers here in the Kansas City area 
If they were comfortable doing so, recording some conversations with students about this most recent school shooting and how it has affected them and their thinking. And this is some of what we heard. Personally, in my school, I generally feel safe. There's always an occasional thought of what would I do if a situation like that arose and how would I react and would I be able to survive. But um, my school, I think, does a good job of making me feel safe. We know that he was somehow able to attain something that regular people shouldn't be able to attain, especially at that age and he used that weapon to kill people with. And the news even said that at his age, he was legally able to attain that gun, which is ridiculous. In this neighborhood, we always see guns. We always see people fight. So it's not normal for them to come to school with a gun. They're, they might fight, never a gun here. I think one of the things that's interesting is that in government, you talk about like, protecting citizens and so like we think about children as supposed to be like the protected citizens of the USA but like if you if you think about Florida they're really like the the least protected right like if if you've got guns and, and we can't take them away right or we can't restrict them aren't they the most protected citizens of the U.S.? Those were uh, some students from our teachers here at No Wrong Answers in the days after the Parkland school shooting just asking them about their opinions um, and feelings. Um, back in the studio, from your perspective, do you feel things are different this time around? I feel like I haven't seen kids get this enraged. I think it's because the shooter himself was around their age, had been expelled, and then targeted the school as well. I don't think they have seen that. And so I've seen kids really want to do something and a group of our students are actually having a forum with the administrators at the school and like an open talk with the entire school during our seminar period on Thursday to voice their opinions on what they feel should change. My fear is twofold. One, you have a generation of youth who have become desensitized because it's like, oh, another one? I believe on the Saturday after the shooting, the New York Times referred to it as the mass shooting generation. Exactly. I mean, they've they've grown up post-1999 Columbine. And I worry that because youth are so fragile, what could happen is you have all this energy, these kids are very passionate, wanting something to change. And then if nothing changes, which has been the historical response, nothing changes, if their energy fizzles because they are discouraged. Because what you need, what they need to understand is it's going to take, like any other social movement, it's going to take some time. But they're going to have to be intense for a long period of time. The black rights movement, the women's rights movement, the LGBTQ movement, those people said 20 years were in your face. Mm-hmm. you know. And these kids are going to have to recognize that one month or one year of... Or one tweet. Here, or one tweet, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. like one day, everybody leaving school. These congressmen do not care. You have to let them see that when I become 18, I'm voting this way. And I might be 15 now, but you're going to hear from me until I can vote. And they, they have to keep beating that down. And and if they don't understand that it's a, they're in it for the long haul, then these congressmen will just say, well, yeah. we'll, we'll wait. Jamie. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because, you know, when David was talking about that, this is the generation of 
instant gratification. Mm -hmm. I need it now. It needs to change now or you need to rate me or you need to do like you need to give me instant feedback. And so if million likes. Yeah. (laughs) And if legislation isn't going to change instantaneously, that's just not how it works. And they have to put in the work. There's work involved here. You have to be constantly emailing or writing letters or, you know, protesting that this is a problem. Jason. And I think we have to be honest with our students as well. Um, money drives politics. And so as far as, you know, the discussion of them being proactive and writing their, you know, their local politician or representative, that that's only so much of the means that they can do. The protests can work and the visibility can work, but we have to make them understand that that instant gratification isn't going to come immediately based on the way our political world uh, exists. You know, something I noticed in the immediate aftermath of this shooting that I had not noted in prior school shootings, and and they have happened frequently, is there seemed to be a more, and you can agree or disagree with my analysis of this, but there seemed to be a more immediate jump to um, a criticism of what the school did not do. This uh, suspected gunman had been a former student expelled, got onto campus with a gun, with several guns. Um, There were warning signs. And now in in reporting in the days after, there seemed to be several institutions and organizations that might have... this kid might have been on their radar and, and there were cracks and voids that he got through. What is the role of, of, of schools in a situation like this, right? Because I think it's like it was even quoted um, in one of the stories that, you know, the teachers and or students saw this kid as the kid who was going to be the school shooter if there was going to be a school shooter. Like they used that phrase. Like if anyone was going to do it, it was going to be this kid. As educators, do similar thoughts go through your head? And and what's your what's the balance of still educating a human being and, and trying to be their mentor and, and guide, but also like having those thoughts in the back of your head. I, I will admit that there are students sometimes that kind of intimidate you because of some of their thoughts or you see their doodles or you see what they're, you know, writing about. And as a writing teacher, I get to see a lot of that. And we have avenues. We, it, I can't put the onus on the school because we talk to our counselors. We talk to our SROs. We give them heads up. We tell them what we're thinking. I hate to say it, but there's really only so much that as a classroom teacher I can do, and I do it every time, and then you kind of rely on the next step to, to help, you know, either quell this student's behavior or get them the mental services that they need, which is also really hard in education because for whatever reason, you know, either funding or the way that it appears in our society, getting mental health help is very hard. Yeah. David. I, I think the premise of the question just frustrates me because you, you the, when they ask the question, what more should schools do? Like, that's such a cop out. Mm-hmm. You know, like, look at what schools are already doing. Mm-hmm. Within education, we mentor we now we're guidance counselors, even though we're not all trained to do that. Now you want me to be a like FBI agent too? Like, what do you want from me? Mm-hmm. Like, when that student comes in those doors and comes into my classroom, my concern should not be about that. That's a societal cultural issue that these politicians and such are copping out and putting it upon us. Mm-hmm. And you know, and, and, and us having to try to figure out more ways. I wore a shirt on Friday and kind of in response, a silent protest said, school's not prisons. Like, we're not, do you want us to become prisons? If you want us to 
operate like prisons and, you know, 24-hour lockdown, no kids, everybody come in. If you're not in by this time, you can't get in, and there's no getting out until 2.40, and there's going to be metal detectors every single day. If that's what the society you want to create, then go ahead and do it, but I'm still going to educate. You know, and if you ask me to carry a gun, I'm going to quit my job. Well, that that was my next question, but I could see where this was going, right? So that that was another thing that came up in the days after the shooting. On the more conservative side, yes, it went straight to let's arm the teachers. No. It's like medicating. No. We're, We're giving medicine that doesn't heal. We're just patting it, like, feel better. So it, everybody will feel better because car- teachers are carrying guns. Everybody will feel better because now you have metal detectors. And then there'll be another school shooting, and then they'll go to another extreme. Instead of, like, looking at, well, maybe if you would have ate this, you wouldn't have got sick, right? Like, the, <laughs> the problem is the guns and the culture of guns that's being misused, not the schools. The schools are not creating school gun like the shooters. We are not creating mass shootings. The culture is creating the mass shootings at schools. And the last thing you want to do is put a gun in a school because all it is going to do is increase the anxiety of our students and students who come from communities where there are a a large portion of guns. They come to school because it's a safe place to be. Uh, Every kid that I said that even said, do you feel safe in this school? And every one of them said, yeah, I feel safe in my school. But bring a gun into school and that feeling is going to turn is going to make a 180. School shootings happen with a disturbing frequency. does that frequency make you all think as educators more and more um, that this is something that could or, uh, dare I say, will happen at your school at some point during your career? I mean, are, are, what what is your thinking on that? Because I, I remember when I used to be a teacher, I mean, Newton happened when I was a teacher, and it's still, it, it, the thought to me was like, it's never going to happen to me. It's never going to happen at my school. I, I wonder, as it continues to happen, it continues to happen. Does your thinking about that evolve? Do you do you think it will happen? I mean, I don't know if I, I think that it will happen. I just don't think that it's far from my mind that it could happen. Yeah, my mom called me on Friday and she said, I just pray for you mm-hmm. and I hope that you're safe. Mm-hmm. And I've never really, I've, I never thought of it in any other way except that I've always felt safe in my school. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we do Alice drills, you know, we, what happens if the shooter active, does come active in active shooter training, Yeah, active shooter training, you know, our, you know, we have, uh, I have two different exits out of my room and a third, if I need to, like I, we've talked about, we've talked to the kids. We know what we're going to do. If, if that ever is the case, you know, one, one student said, you know, I feel safe because the shooter can, is going to have to come through the front door and the front door is away from the academic wing and security is right there. And then they have to go past the office and they're like going step by step before, you know, a shooter would ever actually get to where the students are. And then I thought to myself, well, then you've really thought about this. And so I feel like my kids have probably thought more about a school shooting happening here than I've actually thought in my career. And that gets back to the point that David made earlier, the, the idea that these kids have grown up in this, mm-hmm. in this environment with this, this type of thinking very common. Yeah, and I just have to say kind of, and I know we've all, I've mentioned this kind of stuff before in the past. It's such a discouraging conversation, you know, like the reality of it. I remember going home to my wife um, after the news of all this and being like, I'm terrified for my daughters. Mm-hmm. You know, like the world that we're putting them into, I was, I told her, I'm putting my daughter in an all-girls school now. Like, <laughs> I'm convinced in my mind. She goes to a private Montessori, but I'm like, 
well, I've never heard of a school shooting at an all-girls school, and girls aren't the school shooters. So, I mean, stereotypically. So, no, well, no, I mean statistically. Statistically, <laughs> it hasn't you're, you're happened. Right. No, so, I'm convinced that I'm putting my daughter in an all-girls school, and I'm 100% feeling that way right now. Maybe it's emotion, but it's just such a sad conversation to have because, as educators, we we want to bring light to these kids' lives. Like we all went into this ed- this field. I can I know both of you that feel the same way to make society better and make our communities better and you look at where you're at and you look at these kids they have so many other issues and the last thing you want to do is add to add to that with this you know and it's not our fault you know our podcast is sponsored by the coffin foundation learning together with families educators entrepreneurs and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kaufman.org or on Twitter at KaufmanFDN. A few weeks ago on No Wrong Answers, we talked about a story that at the time was roiling Washington, D.C. public schools, but also seemed very relevant for our teachers. Public radio station WAMU reported that at D.C.'s Ballou High School, the majority of students in last year's graduating class had missed more than six weeks of school in their senior year. Yet every senior in the class graduated. Teachers and former teachers at the school said that they faced pressure to pass students even if those students had not met academic or attendance standards. Well, that turned out to be just the beginning. The problems at Ballou prompted the D.C. mayor's office to audit graduation district-wide and found similar, if not so egregious, patterns of what can best be described as graduation inflation. The audit concluded that at least one-third of seniors in Washington, D.C.'s class of 2017 had not met the district grading or attendance standards for graduation. According to WAMU, again, the audit report cited aggressive graduation goals, burdensome paperwork needed to fail students, and empathy for students facing tough circumstances, all as factors contributing to this culture. If this all sounds familiar to you as a teacher, that's probably because you've either heard of this kind of stuff happening before or, in fact, may have the nagging sense something like it is happening in your district. Indeed, Education Week reports in recent years there has been a, quote, steady drumbeat of graduation rate fudging in schools across America taking on various forms. Federal audits have shown California and Alabama boosted their statewide graduation numbers by counting students that should not have been counted. Districts in Atlanta and Orlando have come under scrutiny for massaging graduation rates in part by actively persuading low-performing students to transfer out. It's gotten so bad, some are now questioning whether the national graduation rate of 84%, which is an all-time high, is itself inflated. Joining us to talk about this and take our teachers' questions is Catherine Gewertz. She's a reporter for Education Week who has recently written about the national context of graduation inflation in the wake of the D.C. schools scandal. Catherine Gewertz, thank you for joining us. Sure, glad to be here. Uh, So the point is, uh, both from your recent writing and and other media reports, what happened in D.C. is not isolated. In fact, it may be alarmingly common. Do I have that right? Absolutely, yeah. we, We were writing stories about graduation rate fudging and reporting for years before the D.C. scandal at Blue, ha- at Blue High happened. Yeah. What is driving this? Why are teachers, schools, districts feeling the need to boost their graduation rates to the point of essentially faking them? I think there's some pressures that are in common to most high schools and some that were particularly uh, intense in D.C. because of the way they designed their accountability system. I'll start with the ones 
that are really more in common. I think one of the pressures that cuts across all high schools is accountability. There's a unique kind in D.C., which I'll get to in a second. But the very fact that schools are responsible for reporting good graduation rates, good four-year or five-year graduation rates, does translate into a form of pressure at school. Um, There are particular pressures in urban districts where there's high rates of poverty, poverty, high concentrations of poverty, which often tend to go hand-in-hand with absenteeism, chronic absenteeism, and teachers are between a rock and a hard place trying to figure out, what do I do with this student that I cannot make show up? Um, But if I fail him, I'm putting a big X on his life and harming his life in one way. If I pass him through, I'm passing him through to something he's not prepared for, so it's a terrible dilemma. The particular kind of pressure that was worse in D.C., was the fact that this was one of the few places that linked teachers' and principals' evaluations to graduation rates. So uh, administrators and teachers in D.C. schools felt personally on the hook for something they couldn't control. So what's the, wide, what, what's the wider effect on, on the, like the D.C. community or any community where a school district might be inflating or, or graduating students who who maybe haven't, haven't earned it and aren't, as you've indicated, prepared for either college or, or post-secondary life. Right. I mean, I think when something is going on in a community like that at scale, like it is in D.C. and like it is in other places, there's a whole cascading set of effects, right, from the macro, which is a community starts questioning what its graduation rate even means. Like, you have this big press conference every year, you tell us it's gone up, you tell us it's high. We don't even believe that now. Um, so a loss of faith in schools, a loss of faith in accountability, um, a loss of faith in everybody that's a part of the school system, that's the teachers, the administrators, and that can be uh, very undermining to a school's effectiveness, a school district's effectiveness. So that's one macro example of an effect that can flow out of this sort of thing. You know, on, a, on an individual basis, you can imagine how many students are walking away with diplomas and they are not prepared to do well in college. They're not prepared to do well in whatever post-secondary job training program they want to go to. Maybe their reading and writing skills are up to par. Maybe they're not, but we don't really know because they have not met standards. So questions about, deep questions about how well we are preparing our kids to do whatever's next after high school. Uh, in what other ways are you are you finding districts fudging their numbers? You just mentioned California and Alabama. We've been talking about the DC example. Uh, what other? I mean, what in what other ways are districts um, doing this? Yeah, there's a there's a whole variety of ways. It's like there's sort of a, a toolbox, um, and some of them are. Um, I don't think Ill, I, I, some of them are not ill intentioned. Some of them are just a misunderstanding of what's required under federal law. Some of them you have to wonder if there wasn't um, a more of a motive to look better. Um, ProPublica did a wonderful investigation uh, in the past year that zeroed in on some schools in Orlando, Florida. And one of the strategies there was if you persuade your lower-performing students to transfer to alternative or charter schools, then your home school doesn't have to count them, their likely lack of graduation in its own grad rate, and it looks better. So there's sort of a push-out dynamic that can happen in some places. In other cases, it's things like 
in my graduation rate, should I count students who get a GED? That's against federal regulations, but places still do it. Whether it's to try to look good or just because they didn't know what the regulations require, open question. Counting GEDs, counting summer graduates, that's still an irregular practice. Some places count graduates that finish in the summer. And some, some of this is not clear under federal rules. Are you allowed to count summer graduates? The GED issue is very clear. The other thing is that transfers are a source of tricky, um, a tricky challenge because under federal rules, schools are supposed to have written documentation that a student transferred to another institution, a degree-granting institution, a diploma-granting institution. So, for instance, to, to be able to not count that student in your cohort, you've got to be able to document that they transferred to another high school or another place where they are diploma-bound. Uh, so Some places still, still count homeschooled students, and they're not supposed to. So, so uh, you know, they're, they're altering their numbers in a variety of ways. Uh, so, Catherine, with all this said, should we believe the much ballyhooed figure of 84% national graduation? I mean, it's been a, something that's been bragged about, you know, for the last year or so. Well, one of the people that's most expert in this, Robert Balfans from Johns Hopkins University, I put that question to him and a number of people. But one thing Bob told me was that even though this stuff is going on and there is cause for concern, he feels that the impact on the national rate from all of these different strategies, if you, if you roll them all together, he feels at most it's inflated by two to four percentage points. Now, in given districts or states, you could have more of a variation depending on the concentration of fudging or miscalculating where it is, how deep it is. Um, I know folks that, that track the grad rate nationally, and they've gone into districts to do deep dives. And they also told me that they only usually find they have to reduce rates by two to three percentage points at the most. So all these folks have been telling me we don't think the rates locally or nationally are that inflated, but to some degree they probably are a little inflated, two to four percentage points max. Uh, at the high school level, um, or even I mean, at any level, and this is a question more for the teachers, but it's... Is it hard to fail students? I mean, not emotionally, but logistically, procedurally. Yes. Is it hard to fail students? Yes. No. Well, based on what I've heard, it is. That's interesting. That I would love to hear what the teachers on the panel's experience is. But just very briefly, what I heard in reporting the D.C. national story is, in D.C., I know there's a huge documentation burden in order to justify failing a student. And when Ed Week put out feelers on social media for teacher feedback about their experiences. I heard a couple of stories that uh, from other parts of the country that said the same thing. My principal called me into the office and scolded me for giving a D. Um, or that there's uh, tons of paperwork and justification you have to fill out in order to fail a student. So I, what about the teachers on yeah. the panel? What's your experience? There's, there seem to be some difference of opinion mm -hmm. here. So, Jason, you said no. <laughs> yeah, I said no. Uh, you know, I look at a, I look at a student. I look at a set of expectations and standards that kids have to meet within the classroom. You know, I differentiate every assignment from my sped kids all the way up through my gifted kids, uh, so that every class has that opportunity to be successful. Uh, I maintain, you know, particular requirements in terms of homework and not turning in late work, and 
that those expectations have been set for now 15 years. And you don't get a lot mm-hmm. of you don't get pushback from your administration. You don't have a conversation like you don't get called into your office. I, like I had a conversation like, just looking at the failure rates, but then I had the principals come in and I said, you know, we they had I mean I made them come in and do observations. I then sat down to do reflection. I showed them I do weekly schedules, if not two week schedules. Uh, kids can take a picture of it. Parents can request it. You know, the the accountability factor falls on the student, and I've made that case for many years now. And so if a kid fails, that means they, they chose to not study. They chose to not do the work. And in all my years, I've never had someone come back to me and say, we're going to put you on a teacher plan, a PIP. You know, they understand that. I'm trying to do my best to prepare those kids for the future. It does future. sound like you're a lot of proactive steps on your part, though. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, to, to the audience, I do do a, a curve as well uh, just to make sure that, you know, the, the grades are kind of reflective. But if a kid falls in a, in, a, in a situation where their percentage just isn't high enough and they haven't done the work, then I have no problem yeah. providing enough to that student David, you said that yes. they earned. Yeah, I mean, uh, especially for my students who are uh, upperclassmen. For my freshman classes, there's not as much of a problem because um, there's time for them to do recovery, summer classes, whatever it may be. But um, we have to... Um, do so many hours of outside contact with parents and it's expected that uh, if a student has a D or an F you've contacted the parents and let them know what the situation is opportunities for um, you know recovery or whatever the the case may be Um, because I've seen it happen where I knew a student didn't didn't deserve a, a passing grade and they walked at graduation. Yeah. And I'm like, I didn't give them. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. And there's just ways around it. So it, I think what happens is that some of the districts don't want the hassle. So they just move them along. It's like it's, it's easier to just let them graduate, barely, barely make it through, than um, do the, the intense work it's going to take to deal with this one or two kids or whatever it may be. Um, you know, because the chances of a kid coming back after they have finished their senior year and doing summer school, which the district makes money off of, but very few of them are post-senior students. It's mostly pre. So, and I mean, and you've talked before. You have a you work at a school where the parent population is vocal. Yeah, helicopter. involved. <laughs> I mean, you, you've called them helicopter parents before. Does that? I mean, does that? Uh, you're going to that, that a, plays in, that plays into get it. A million calls and emails. Uh, if Johnny's not going to. Get, get an A or whatever and you, know, you can have all the and sometimes you know like it's not even worth it dealing with this parent like so and so parent it might not even be worth let me just go and give him a D even if, like, even if say you've taken like steps like what Jason yes, outlined absolutely because at the end of the day it's the teacher do, gotta do a better job it, it all comes back to the teacher if there's failing students and they're not graduating the teachers aren't doing a good job the teachers aren't doing their you know and you hear all the stuff that he does to make sure that there's this net <laughs> for these kids to fall into if they're struggling. And then we still have kids who fail. Mm-hmm. And there's lit- there's kids who some of them just do not care mm-hmm. and are not motivated. And we can do everything that we want, try to do, do the right way. I have a phenomenal principal who's supportive. And you're still going to get parents blaming the teachers. And it's a lot of pressure. And sometimes you get to a point, I hate to say it, where I'm like, all right, I'm just going to round them up and give them a D. Like, I just don't feel like 
You don't feel like dealing with it, yeah. If it's close enough. And one of the things that's frustrating about what you said was that, so the parents call and then you're expected to give them an alternative assignment so that they can do that alternative assignment so they can get their grade up. But what about the kid whose parent isn't as involved? Right. Because so now you're changing the standards in your classroom because now you're giving one kid an opportunity to get a better grade Mm -hmm. and to pass your class while this other kid didn't have that same opportunity. His parents weren't aware or whatever the case may be. Catherine Gewertz is a reporter for Education Week. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Good luck to everyone in your teaching jobs, too. Thank Thank you, you. Catherine. Stay tuned. We're going to do Kids These Days after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, Kids These Days, I might as well just retitle this particular episode of Kids These Days the the Black Panther Hour. I think, based on our early indications coming into the studio. So, uh, David, you want to kick us off? What are your kids into these days? Or what are you into these days? Man, (laughs) I am so uh, overwhelmed with excitement over Black Panther. I I took a group of 30 people last night, and I'm working on taking a private uh, showing for a group of students that I mentor, students of color, uh, in a predominantly um, non-minority-based school. And it was just so well done, and it touched upon so many societal issues and um, questions of uh, of superiority complexes. And I'm still still embracing it, but uh, I'm just really moved by it. In my, and it's great to see youth so excited. And I had students of all racial backgrounds contacting me saying, Mr. Muhammad, you're going to love it. It's great. It's amazing. And I just love seeing something positive um, in the midst of all what's going on in society. And I think everybody should have to go see it. And I'm going to find a way to c- relate it to social studies, and I will be showing it in class <laughs> at some point. And I, I don't care what anyone says. You won't be grading through that, right? Uh, no, there will be no grading. There will be no assignment. Their job will be to watch and embrace. That's J- it. Jason, I, I believe your kids are, are into something similar. Uh, they were also into <laughs> Black Panther, but I, I was going to speak to the Winter Olympics okay, and some yeah. of our... Uh, LGBTQ students who were excited to see Gus Kenworthy and Adam Rippon embrace during the opening ceremonies and I just want to applaud NBC for embracing uh, the community and giving them a voice uh, for our students. And so you're, I mean, you're saying it, it really it made real waves with your LGBT it students? It did, yeah. yeah. Uh, and Jamie, what are your kids into? Man, I feel outnumbered here because those are two really good and heavy ideas. Uh, I was just going to talk about really terrible slang that they're using right now. <laughs> I teach in a middle school, too. It's a good too, way to go though. out. <laughs> yeah, middle schoolers are way more interested in themselves than society. So right now everything's like low-key, like low-key oh lit God, or low-key awesome. or So low-key is huge right now, and I, I don't key. think I know how to use it right. Just say high lock in response. <laughs> high lock. Yeah, no, man, high lock. High lock. It's the opposite. <laughs> That's good. What's, uh, that, okay, high lock is the opposite of low I just key. made that up. Right? Just, yeah, because oh. <laughs> low, high, <laughs> key, lock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Damn. Okay, got it. I don't want anybody throwing hands here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, that's a, low, a good low-key way to end <laughs> there you go. The, the podcast. Thanks to our teachers this week, Jamie Myers, David Muhammad, and Jason Staliga. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. <laughs>